In a few hours, I will have surgery. I will lie there, cold, fearful, alone, and naked save a surgical gown. A knife will cut through my fragile body. The outcome is unknown. But as the needle is inserted, and the surgeon tells me to count down from ten, I will instead tell them with certainty, I embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 106 of Embrace the Void, where the category is Void, Death, and Beauty. Been watching a lot of Pose, which I strongly recommend. That is some voidy stuff. Um, My guest this week is also an expert on posing and death. He joins me to discuss how his art plays a role in promoting conservation. So let's get posing. My guest this week is Brant McDuff, a public taxidermist uh, who uses the art of dead things to educate people on conservation. Brant, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, Void. Thank you for having me. Really glad to have you here. Um, Brent and I crossed paths at Nexus this year, um, which was a lot of fun. It was great to meet a bunch of people there. Um, and I knew that immediately that we were meant for each other because he uh, did a lengthy bit about uh, taxidermy. So we're going to talk about um, that some today. But before we get there, my understanding is you have a bit of a background in theater as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say a you know background. It was one of my it was one of my uh, majors in college, and uh, me too. Um, I yeah, I love it. I did uh, I did improv in Chicago at uh, I O and Second City, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I love I love being on stage and playing off other people. Um, uh, love to see theater so yeah just a one of those college theater kids <laughs> did you sure. have any top roles that you either got to perform or wanted to perform you sort of oh man roles? um you know i went to a tiny little boarding school for uh for high school mm-hmm. and as much fun as i had in college with the productions that we did there uh i'd say doing stuff at uh, with my boarding school, just because it's already such a tight knit little community, and then you add the theater weirdos to that, mm-hmm. and then later in Chicago, getting to know a bunch of improv people, it just kind of it seemed like the same old the same old crowd, you know, a bunch of uh, misfit outcasts um, who just haven't grown out of playing make believe, and uh, uh-huh. so yeah, I've always loved that. Do you feel like what you do now is still some version of playing make-believe? A little bit. I mean, I certainly try not to lose that, uh, not on on purpose. I think once people reach a certain age, they try to uh, get rid of that part of themselves uh, in an effort to become a grown-up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm certainly still in no hurry to do that. Uh, but I think a, a bunch of my... Uh, interest in uh, the outdoor world actually comes from being a little kid and my favorite bit of make-believe and the person that I always was when it was me playing around was some sort of old-timey woodland adventurer, you know? So I, uh, I always loved the 
the idea of being out in the woods or the jungle or in Africa running around with a uh-huh. rifle and kind of having adventures and things like that. So Very, very colonialist. Uh, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're kind of a whimsical uh, taxidermist. Is that, that the takeaway here that... Oh, definitely. I mean, there's certainly a lot of whimsy in taxidermy. Uh, certainly, uh, Walter Potter, who's a character who I talk about in one of my lectures, is definitely sort of the the one of the early fathers of of whimsy when it comes to taxidermy. But not the not the only one. You know, you can think of so many different uh, aspects of history where someone was coming up with something like the Fiji mermaid or um, trying to create things that didn't exist out of taxidermy. It's this uh, art form that lets you use real natural things, but that doesn't mean you can't come up with something fantastical. Uh, There's actually a group in, uh Oh, I'm going to mess up their, their name or where they're from. Uh, but there's a group of taxidermists from, uh, I want to say Michigan, mm-hmm. but they do, they specifically do uh, sort of a style of taxidermy that is uh, very much meant to be outside of uh, the norm or what you might think of when you would either go into a uh-huh. house and see like deer heads on the wall or go to a museum and uh and see taxidermy there this is more of a rogue uh rogue is really the term for it rogue non, taxidermy. non-naturalist and, maybe yeah well sometimes they're sometimes they're sort of <laughs> maybe the animals are done in a very natural sense but maybe what the animals are doing isn't so natural or uh maybe an entirely new fantastical animal is created uh out of using real animals We're definitely so there's a lot of different links for the show notes it. yeah that sounds good um I'm- yeah I'll, I'll put a, a uh, i'll let you know um who they are are there um this is actually a question i had for later but since you bring it up as a taxidermist, are there? Do you ever have the urge to like do crypto taxidermy? And like, what are the kind of things that you would try to make if you could start <laughs> Frankensteining some pieces together? Oh man, I wish I was that good. Um, so there are people who, well, not so much crypto, but uh, so there's this guy Ken Walker, and he's one of the best taxidermists out there, uh, incredible taxidermist. And for the world taxidermy, uh, championships, (laughs) uh, there's a world taxidermy. I love it. Oh, there are. Yes, there absolutely is. And I mean, it is just unbelievable. The stuff that you see there, just the, the most, uh, the, the most perfect examples of taxidermy from all over the world. Um, (laughs) And obviously, because it's the World Taxidermy <laughs> Finals. But so Ken Walker made an Irish elk once. Now, those are the Irish elk is an animal that went extinct around the time of the, you know, the woolly mammoth and the saber tooth cat. And mm-hmm. uh, Dis- distinguishable then, we, for what being. What's that? I- I'm trying to avoid a bunch of Irish stereotypes here while characterizing this particular <laughs> elk. How do you how do you distinguish uh, the Irish elk from other elks? Okay, well, certainly if we because we have their skeletons, you I'm sure even as a kid you you would have seen one in a museum somewhere. Um, they have, if you think of maybe sort of a cross between an elk and a moose, they have maybe more. They're more. Uh, elk-like face and body, but a more moose-like antler. Very, very broad and wide. Um, <laughs> Big-ass elk. Is that what you're telling me here? Huge. Oh, Big just huge. Yeah. Um, ben Affleck kind would... of elk, right? Like... Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can Google Irish elk and you'll see, you'll see pictures. Um, they, we don't really have examples of their furry bodies we have mm-hmm. uh, sort of things that museums have put together mostly skeletons but ken walker <laughs> made one from scratch uh <laughs> using what we know about their uh once you put their skeleton together then you can sort of figure out how their musculature was put together and you know you um you go from there 
so what did he make he it still, out of? <laughs> so he used the uh, he used the pelts of caribou and elk and uh, just kind of piecemealed uh, this critter together from <laughs> the the best of what our knowledge is about their their skeletal system and therefore their muscular uh, system and then where where they lived in the world so what that might make their fur look like and is it okay um, to just giggle uncontrollably about this is it like is it oh, all right sure. to view this as like i don't want to be judging anyone's particular preference like this is clearly like socially acceptable buffalo bill territory and i'm super on board with it <laughs> and like i respect the art but like i just it's so funny the idea of like and then he built an elk from scratch yeah you know? oh yeah i mean this is a this is a huge part of the competition is um they're they're like replicas they're recreations this is an entire division of the competition so you know one year someone made a panda bear from scratch you know not using a panda so it's like okay so you've got some other fur and then you've got a you've got to airbrush it, you know, dye it in some places. What are you going to use for this? What are you going to use for that? So it's really as fun and silly as it seems, it's sort of an exercise in your artistic prowess. Do you know enough about history and anatomy and natural history to put this animal together from nothing? Um, Is this... It's pretty unbelievable. I'm curious, actually, about the gender breakdown on this a little bit. Is this, like, a socially acceptable for men arts and crafts activity? Like, Absolutely. Okay. It is. Uh, so, certainly, the professional field is mostly dominated by men. However, the amount of women competing rises and rises each, each year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd say the, uh, without question, the majority of new professional taxidermists or taxidermy instructors Mm -hmm. that you see in cities now are primarily women. Interesting. Just here in, uh, here in New York city, the first immediately, I think of three friends of mine who are taxidermists and they're all women. Uh And there's a woman, Alice Markson, out of L.A., and she runs a taxidermy studio uh, and does work with the L.A. Natural History, the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles. Um, and she has won awards at the World Competition. Um, you know, taxidermy has certainly gone in and out of vogue Mm-hmm. so many times i feel like the the progress like if you think of clothing and how people will say like oh it'll be back in style in a few years that that sort of cycle of what comes in and out of style and fashion i think happens more rapidly than taxidermy coming in and out of style it had a mm-hmm. huge i mean it was just it was everything in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Victorian era taxidermy was everywhere. It was massive. Mm-hmm, right. And then it, from there, it slowly went out of fashion until it was very out of fashion. What's and the main it, driver it, it, that it, takes it out of fashion, by the way? Um, well, I think that was maybe around the, the 60s. And so around the 60s, you're getting sort of like this hippie environmental movement. Mm-hmm. And someone looks at a deer head on the wall and it is the antithesis of what they consider to be um, environmentally friendly. So it becomes a right-wing art form, right? It seems like. Yeah. um, I think. Except for conservationists, I suppose. Well, the, so certainly the political breakdown is a whole thing on its own. And I, yeah, I definitely want to touch on that, but the, yeah, I think it was, before it became political, it was still considered an art form. You know, you would, you mm-hmm. would go to, if you had money and uh, you shot something, you wanted to have it taxidermied and you wanted it done by the best. And mm-hmm. people just like artists in any other field, there were reputations of who was good or who you could afford. Right. Um, so it's always been, and it absolutely, you know, it's, if you think of what, art is or what it has to be there's no way the taxidermy isn't an art first of all it's definitely sculpture oh absolutely yeah you must be able to sculpt um 
and you have to have as intense of a knowledge of anatomy as any artist who only focuses on the human body. If you want to be a good taxidermist, you've got to know the difference in anatomy of a bufflehead duck and a <laughs> mallard duck and a pintail duck and the difference between a mule deer and a white-tailed deer and a black-tailed deer. And so there are these little nuances that you just have to know if you want to be any good. Yeah, you mentioned human taxidermy, which we're going to talk about at some point here. But <laughs> um, I'm curious broadly, I, I totally agree with you that it is an art. Do you think that it is by necessity a, a macabre art? Or do you feel like that's an unearned sort of reputation about this thing? Well, I think anytime you're talking about what is or isn't the macabre, uh, you're definitely dealing with people's opinion. As far as I'm concerned, no. Mm -hmm. But as far as I'm concerned, yeah, let's do some human taxidermy. I don't have a problem with that either. You know, like my, my view on death and the hereafter, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think is so sort of um, uh, not precious to say the least um so it's like well once something is dead i don't care yeah no, i mean again <laughs> you know? we're very pro cannibalism on this show so i'm excited oh, about that's this great. So, let's, so let's talk human taxidermy right i have like, a human placenta in my freezer right now oh do you yeah speaking of <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna you're, how are you gonna cook that are you gonna like cut it up thin with some onions i was, or? I was thinking a haggis Ooh. A sort of um mm -hmm. deconstructed haggis mm -hmm. uh, yeah i, I, I can't I can't get a lot of the ingredients, but I figure if you have, you know, legally you can't get mm. a lot of the ingredients to make a haggis in the U.S. But I feel like if you have a human placenta, that'll take the place of a few of those different ingredients. Fair enough. I, I do, mm. as we're talking about all of this stuff in the, you know, like I was raised on Hannibal Lecter. And so that's always in the back of my mind when it comes yeah. to arranging dead things of various sorts while also cooking and eating them. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll talk about, we want to talk about conservation and hunting, because you mentioned that before the show as well as something, but a, a human taxidermy, right? What are the yeah. laws? What what can I get away with? What can you help <laughs> me out with, hypothetically speaking? Well, this, I mean, certainly I have a very, uh, I don't know, let's call it libertarian view of what should be, what you should be able to do with the body after it's dead. Uh, you know, when I die... Yeah. Heck yeah. I would love to be taxidermy. That would be great. Um, but, uh, you know, if something useful can be, can be done with my body, fine. But, mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of, a lot of laws around. I think it's, it's more that people are concerned about a slippery slope argument, which if you talk to an actual lawyer, they'll tell you is the worst legal argument. But I, I think that's out there in the, in the ether as, uh, a slippery as, slope to what everyone being mummified. Like, uh, no, just in general of like, we don't want to open that can of worms in I terms think. of what you can do with a body after it's dead. I don't think people, legislators want to touch that. Um, the same way we so, couldn't do, um, autopsies or, or study human cadavers a few hundred years ago kind of situation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, um, Prudes. <laughs> I, now there are, uh, there are making great headways with tattoo preservation. So if you have a tattoo, it is legal for you to, after death, have your tattoo removed and sent to a, uh, a special uh, place mm -hmm. where they will preserve the tattoo and frame it for you and send it back. So you can have this memento uh, of someone that isn't necessarily grandma's entire body um that's a pretty now, cool memento mori as far as things go yeah right pretty cool yeah to uh tattoo tattoo preservation uh i believe there's i don't think he's dead yet but there is a guy in australia mm -hmm. and he has i believe the most tattoos covering his body from one a particular artist who specializes in i believe the plants and animals that are uh, mm. local to different parts of Australia. Mm -hmm. And I believe the Australian a museum in Australia said, Hey, after you die, can we have your pelt? <laughs> and yeah. he was like, yeah, great. That so, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, 
Do you know the classic um, philosophy version of this story, the taxidermy story? Uh, oh, no, it sounds great. Do you, you know about me? Jeremy Bentham? Do you know oh, Jeremy yes. Bentham? Well, so I was just about to bring him up, actually. Oh, great. Wonderful. Do the thing. Um, yeah, I mean, well, that's it. Yeah, Jeremy Bentham is a great example of, <laughs> like, you know, the body doesn't matter. Like, why are we being so precious about this? Let's think about what's really important in life. And this is just a shell. Uh, I'm sure you know more about this story than I do. Uh, I just know him as a, I, I know him as a specimen, really. I got to see him when he came into town. You uh, did get to uh, see him. I was, I was going to ask if you had seen him. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, for folks who are not familiar, I want to explain for folks who don't know, okay, yeah. Jeremy Bentham, the father of modern utilitarianism, right? The, the precursor to John Stuart Mill, um after he was dead decided to have his i mean like once he was dead i guess put into his will or whatever to have his body mummified and kept and preserved in university and like is a thing that people at university i don't know which university is on the top of my head but like can go and look at you can look at mummified jeremy bentham Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah so there's two parts to him. There's his body, right. uh, which I believe has his real skeleton, but then is sort of loosely stuffed with straw and all kinds of garbage. Mm-hmm. And then there's his, the head on that body is a wax, uh, a wax head. And then there is his real mummified head that is sitting on a platter and generally rests between his feet. Yes, exactly. I have, I have that picture that I show when I teach utilitarianism. <laughs> like, and here's the founder, this crazy person who... <laughs> but, like, it is a funny... I mean, like, you have this history of human mummification, right? Going back to the Egyptians mm-hmm. and things. And, like, we as a modern culture like to hide our death away. But there, right. are, there are these lots of traditions that have memento moris of various sorts that like keep the dead around in this function in this sort of ritualistic kind of way oh totally and i i I love it yeah i mean certainly you are dead for a lot longer than you are alive (laughs) so i uh yeah i don't know why it's so like i don't want to die yeah i'm afraid of death sure i'm not crazy but i'm also a realist uh Mm -hmm. and i know it's gonna happen and so why why not just why be so afraid of it you know like uh, don't sweeping it under the rug is not going to make it go away that's for sure mm-hmm. um have you ever read any caitlin doty no i cannot recommend her enough um she is a she's a mortician her name's caitlin doty that's d-o-u-g-h-t-y and uh, her first book was called smoke gets in your eyes and it's mm. a it's a memoir of how she got into the business when she was like 23 or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so it's her relationship to death and not just that, but it's her learning about death culture in America and sort of the system of it. And Mm -hmm. it's really sort of made her this, you know, today she's this huge um, sort of, I don't know, like death education advocate. And um, uh, she, her second book, uh, which I think is called From Here to Eternity, mm-hmm. is all about different death practices all mm-hmm. over the world. Um, but she is a wonderful writer. Even if you have no, if you're not like interested in death and you're not some morbid little weirdo, you will enjoy Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. It is a wonderfully written book. She's so, she's also a theater kid. Sounds super um, great. She's she's really fun and uh, writes in this delightful conversational way. She, and she has a, a YouTube show mm-hmm. uh, called Ask a Mortician, where oh, she just cool. sort of answers all kinds of questions. But I, I can't recommend looking into her enough. Caitlin Doty, she's awesome. Nice. Down the line here, we're going to have on the show um, my mom, who's a death doula, who's training to be a death doula, and is, oh wow, has done end of life care sorts of stuff for a long time, uh, and is really wow. So I've I sort of have grown up my father being a clinical psychologist, and and my mother being interested in in that kind of stuff. You can understand where this podcast came from. Right. Um, wow, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, like the human taxidermy stuff is. And, and like that's that's a sort of what a mortician is, right? In a sense, it's a kind of human <laughs> yeah, taxidermy so that is catering yeah. to the needs of a particular culture's sort of expectations about how to handle death. 
Right. Yeah. Preserving. Um, yeah. Preserving the body. It, the, um, what, uh, what I, what really, um, I always sort of connected to Caitlin Doty about is that she is, she, she does a great job of sort of explaining how embalming came to be. And I think mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who just sort of take the embalmed body sitting in a casket as like what is normally done in America. And this is how we treat our dead here in the U S but that's not really the case. America has zero cultural connection to Mm -hmm. embalming or the embalmed body sitting in an open six feet under is a really, really important (laughs) series. I just want to say that. Yeah. That might be the most culturally (laughs) significant thing to come out of embalming. All of my understanding of everything is 100% pop culture based. So continue. uh, I think that's most, I mean, that's what, yeah, that's what culture, yeah. I mean, what is culture if not pop culture? Right. Um, but uh, yeah, the embalming the body was just done as sort of a, uh, they had to figure out something to do during the civil war to get bodies home because it used to be that when you were back in the day, you mm-hmm. didn't live or die far from your home. And people were dying young, so you might just die in the home, and you were left there to to lay in the parlor, and people would come and pay their respects until they stuck you in the ground. Now, the Civil War comes along, and now you've got people dying much further from home uh, than they used to. So there became a problem. How the hell do we get these bodies back to their home without them being gross, slippery, rotting messes? And so... The Undertaker, who at that time was just kind of seen as like, you know, the Undertaker was someone you would make fun of, you know, like the Undertaker. They were Mm -hmm. also a cabinet maker because, you know, you couldn't just build caskets. You had to build uh, cabinets and things like that. So you were like a woodworker that dealt with dead bodies. An untouchable woodworker kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then the so then in World War or uh, sorry, Civil War, they it's the undertakers that start coming up with like, well, if we can figure out a way to preserve the body, then we can get it home. So they come up with embalming and they're doing embalming in the field after these battles, embalming these bodies right there and throwing them on trains and sending them home. And then all of a sudden the embalmer gets this like, now all of a sudden they're in a medical field. So uh, Hmm. they, they end up with this, prestige that they never had before and then they sort of take that into the future of like well this is just kind of what has to happen and you know then of course things start to get expensive and people are like oh let's just cremate that's a hell of a lot easier and so now more people are cremating Uh, my mother donated her body to a uh to the medical university at brown um yeah and they, if you do that, then they'll cream, cremate the body for you afterwards. Um, and cremation, so that, way, that has like environmental downsides though, right? In absolutely. Terms of energy usage. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Cremation is not the best way to go. Ideally, I mean, you can look into green burials and there are a mm-hmm. lot of different ways to go, but it's still an uphill battle, not for... There are a lot of people who are on board with green burials, but it is not necessarily easy to get them or cheap. So that's sort of the next big inroad that needs to be made is making eco-friendly burial accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important practical goal that, that we should be working towards in our current situation. I'm, I'm curious, because you mentioned earlier the different sort of traditions of um burial if if you could sort of go back and rewrite our cultural dna is there a different kind of burial ritual that you feel like from some other culture is particularly um you think good or valuable or something that you would want to integrate into our system well okay so first of all i think everyone is going to jump to viking burial badass right put you on a boat (laughs) push you out to sea and then shoot flaming arrows into the ship and then watch it 
sink into the briny the, the deep rule of cool burial glory, glory what the rule of cool burial yeah I can the see rule that. of cool burial however uh your little ship is gonna burn up way faster than your body so you're just kind of burning the ship out from under you and then you're just gonna Probably not even sink. You're just gonna bob there as like a gross body <laughs> for a while. So, wow. like, as, way to ruin all of Viking yep. deaths for me. Thank you. Totally. Yeah. So it's like it sounds like a really badass thing, but it doesn't really work. Um, so unfortunately, that has to be ruled out. And then I think when broadly, when you look at like what is a cool cultural burial, okay, so cool cultural things are usually we think of them as being really, really old, right? Some tradition that's been around mm-hmm. forever. Well, you know, I think a lot of those are based on whatever old-timey nonsense religion people were practicing at the time. And then uh, also I think of them as pretty useless. And mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, I want everything to be useful and uh, serve a function that is more than emotional. So I was really touched by my mom donating her body to the medical college. So she was a part of science and could be a part of the education of upcoming doctors uh, Mm -hmm. who have to learn anatomy somehow. Mm -hmm. I want my body to be useful. If I spend my entire life doing nothing but watching Netflix, I want at the very least my dead body to go to some good use in the world. You know what would be the what would be the best use of your dead body after spending the whole life watching Netflix? <laughs> would it be like a study of what what Netflix does to human bodies? Yeah, over? exactly. That would that would definitely be. You know, NASA <laughs> has a study going on that I I really considered taking part in. Um, they they will pay you. I can't remember. I'm sure we can look this up. I can't remember how much they will pay you, but they will pay you to lie in a bed for like. I don't know, two or three months, something like that. And it sounds great at first, but I, if I don't move around enough in just mm-hmm. the span of one day, I'll start to tear the house apart like a dog. <laughs> so I just being stuck, being bedridden, uh, uh, bedridden on purpose for uh, a couple months at a time would, would probably have not only, it will definitely have severe physical effects uh, negative physical impacts on your body, but you'd probably go a little crazy. So I declined to enter myself into that study, but uh, I imagine the Netflix death would be similar. Yeah, I could see that. That would, that would make some sense. Are you familiar with sky burials? I imagine. Sky, uh, no, sea burials. Yes, sky burials. No. Oh, sky burials is is my favorite. I learned about this. I think first from the Sandman series, Neil Gaiman's series. Mm. Um, it's a Tibetan ritual, I believe, is where it originates. Oh, okay. The pyre and the birds kind of thing? Yeah, exactly, where you can't bury people because the ground is frozen yeah. and hard and such. So you sort of carve them up and feed them to the birds slowly. Yes, yes, um, yes. That is awesome. That yes. Was always way, way more rule of cool, in my opinion, than uh, the Vikings, right? I, are- I agree. I agree. I would, be, I would definitely be down for that there are there is sort of a a guerrilla movement to if you bury a body on certain pieces of land all of a sudden that land becomes protected because it is now a mm-hmm. burial site right so uh there is sort of a movement to have these guerrilla burials and create um create mm. protected land based on where bodies are buried but you know it's a little bit more complicated than than you know it sounds as as fun and sort of monkey wrench gang <laughs> sounds super awesome um and that that leads into another conversation we want to talk about which was conservation right you mm-hmm. you you love your your taxidermy but you right. it sounds like you're very motivated towards applying this as a way to get people interested in conservation more broadly is that sort of correct yeah, I mean, I have a few different lectures that I give, and they're all related to animals in some way. And I think taxidermy is fascinating on its own. There's so much history. You know, the history mm-hmm. of taxidermy is really the history of exploration and science and uh, natural history. There's so much there. But, um, you know, it's certainly easy to tie into, well, 
if we want to have these animals around forever, uh, you know, taxidermy is certainly one way, but if you want them alive forever, uh-huh. um, conservation has to be a part of that conversation too. And yeah. that, yeah, that, that sort of got me into hunting and the money that is spent on hunting and how that becomes money spent on conservation. I think something that a lot of people just do not know is how much money hunting generates, not just in America, but certainly around the world. But I I try to focus on America in, in one of my lectures, just so people know how the system works. But yeah, why don't you explain a little bit of this? Because this is a sort of counterintuitive hot take for a lot of people, I think, right? We all are familiar with, you know, the pictures of someone who's killed a giraffe or something and how we're all supposed to share those and judge them on Facebook or Twitter. So how, how would you like me to think about that when I look at that picture? Sure. Well, so the first reason that I focus on America is because mm-hmm. the the system in Africa has so many problems and is so tricky that that is its own lecture on its own. Um, But yeah, let's, we'll definitely touch on that. As far as America is concerned, the way, and this, so this, this is in our laws. This isn't just happenstance in the thirties, you know, after the, after we pretty much drove the bison to near extinction and absolutely did uh, make the passenger pigeon extinct, um, there were certain rules put into place. Um, The Pittman-Robertson Act basically created the North American system of wildlife management. And the most important parts of that um, is that when you spend money on a hunting license, uh, your hunter safety course, which you have to get in order to get your license. And then even when you buy your equipment, like your rifle or ammunition, there are hidden taxes Mm -hmm. built into all of that. They're excise taxes. So you as the consumer don't see any of that. It's, it's paid off by the manufacturer Mm-hmm. And it's generally around 11%. But that means every time you buy equipment to go hunting, you are paying money into the system of conservation in America. That money goes almost directly to state and federal agencies specifically for conservation. There's a, yeah. a thing called a duck stamp. And... If, if you want to go duck hunting, you must get one. But there's nothing stopping anybody from buying one. And you, you can go online right now and buy a duck stamp. And these duck stamps, they range, you know, it could be $5, $25. Um, but that money, it's something like 98.9 cents <laughs> <laughs> on each dollar um, of your duck stamp goes directly to the government to buy land to mm-hmm. they're not uh, allowed to spend it in other ways nope exactly so this you are it's the the most direct way to preserve land in america there's certainly lots of conservation groups you can donate money to there's lots of things they have to do with that but if you buy a duck stamp you are literally paying the u.s government to buy and protect land to keep it safe for wild animals mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately I cannot exchange that stamp for like a roast duck though. Right. Like if I go to Chinatown, right, they're right. not going to just give you me know, a duck. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, but that is good to know if people actually want to like, you know, it's hard. It feels like a lot of times to directly support the things that you actually want to support. So it's interesting to note that like, you know, it's sort of like you could buy a hunting license, even if you don't want to go hunting, and Absolutely. you would be directly supporting conservation and not directly supporting something problematic. 
Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, if people have the time, I recommend they do that too. But the thing is, if you want a hunting license, you have to take a hunter safety course. And I recommend that to people just so you can see what it's like. If you want a hunting license, you're going through 20 plus hours of education Hmm. on um, the environment and safety. It's mostly gun safety. Um, But uh, that's what, and then, you know, that's how you get into this whole conversation about um, about gun, when you think of gun laws and gun safety, uh-huh. uh, the majority of people with hunting licenses are safe gun owners. They are using, you're not, you're not using some ridiculous AK 47, you know, assault right. rifle nonsense to go hunting in any manner. Um, so if you want to just go buy an assault rifle, yeah, you can just go do that. But if you want to go hunting, that is money you have to spend and about 20 plus hours of education you have to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone had to take a safety course to buy a gun? But uh, no, just hunters do. Um, and, and do you and, support Do you support hunting? You, you've already said you support it in terms of like it, it leads to this conservation. Do you support it ethically mm-hmm. as an alternative for getting meat, for example? Uh, I do. It's taken me a long time to say that, mm-hmm. but I think, but before that, that was me just firing on my emotions as most people unfortunately do and saying, well, I like animals. I don't want to shoot them. And I certainly don't understand how anyone else could shoot them. Now when, you know, this is why Africa becomes such a hot button topic because People who will never even go to Africa in their entire life have an emotional connection to lions, giraffes, uh, Africa, Africa's animals. We see them as these magical creatures. And mm-hmm. even, for, I mean, certainly, you know, for me personally, the idea of shooting a giraffe is uh, beyond my level of... <laughs> understanding you just curl up and start crying if you even think about it i i just don't know or an elephant like i just don't know how like it's one thing if you're you know like a wildebeest you see one wildebeest in a herd of uh you know 1500 or something but like you see one giraffe walking around and you want to shoot it i don't i don't know how you can do that but that's beside the point the um people so people go to the People who are very, very, very anti-hunting go to the grocery store and buy meat all day long. And that is – I have a, a section in one of my – in my hunting lecture that talks specifically about meat acquisition. So mm-hmm. um, if you are going to eat meat, uh, you've basically got three ways to do it. You can buy grocery store nonsense from some factory farm which is obviously worst case scenario Mm -hmm. you can get your more expensive meat from maybe your you know cutesy mom and pop farmer's market kind of thing or you can go right out into the woods and get it yourself now which one of those is cannibalism in your mind do you feel like where uh, where do the cannibals fit into this man (laughs) or is that a fourth option (laughs) Yeah, wouldn't it be great if that was a fourth option? But then you get into so many harried, like, you know, most dangerous game scenarios. And it's like, well, who are the people who were allowed to hunt? And is there, there's obviously going to end up being some sort of classist or monetary mm-hmm, system mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, ends up hurting the disenfranchised. It's all very different. If, okay. if we could figure out a system that, you know, was really functional. And, uh, you know, we all agreed on who could be hunted. Yeah, sure. Great. Some most dangerous game, cannibal <laughs> meat, meat market. Yeah, it Come on, you are totally straw manning my position here. There could be much more socially productive <laughs> methods by which individuals at the end of their lives, you know, like Dune, like a Stranger in a Strange oh. Land, you know, the, the yeah, resources belong really to the tribe. Want some old person. That's not, no one wants to eat that. <laughs> You want someone young in the you know the prime of their life. I want like uh, a I don't know like a. Mm, I late did have. 20s, I did have like a student that. in my class argue for ethical eat, eating of meat by arguing that we let the animals live until they die naturally and then eat them. Oh. And I'm like, Yikes. I don't think you understand how meat works. 
Yeah. Oof. <laughs> so, no. okay, so you've got these three options, right? You've got um, factory farm, you've got greenwashed factory farm, and then you've got um, <laughs> hunting. Now, uh, there's, yeah, sure, okay, maybe that's I'm, four options. I'm being glib, I'm being glib here. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, your little, your little cute, your little cutesy farm, um, and uh, that you know I go to. I get my my duck breast at the uh, Union yeah. Square. Farmers I, I get market. farmers market meat. I've got a special person. Sure. I know their yeah. name, and it makes me feel better about the meat that I eat. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, no, it's definitely it's that that scene from Portlandia when they want mm-hmm. the dossier on the on the chicken's <laughs> life. You know, the failure. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, uh, I want that too. You're not too. wrong, you're not wrong. Um, but I grew up in Virginia, so, like, I'm sympathetic to the hunting position. Like, I sure. I totally get it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the thing is that hunters have a PR problem, and that's their own fault um, for a number of different ways, reasons. But the fact is, if you if you are buying, like, let's say, yeah, let, so let's say you want to put a pork chop on the table for dinner. Yeah, you've got your factory farm, your farmer's market, and you've got the woods. So factory farm, we can agree that it is bad for the animal's health. It's bad for your health. Those those animals are often riddled with all kinds of um, infections, uh, you know, like open wounds that can infect me. It, it's gross. Yeah. It, it's Pumpful not good. constant meat. antibiotics to prevent them from being infected with things. Oh, yeah. It's all kinds of stuff. There's, yeah, you don't want to eat that. And then there's the the effects to the planet. Uh, Factory farms, you know, farming is terrible for the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, on your cutesy little farm, much better for the animal's health, much better for your health. Not, you know, it's a little better for the Earth's health, but, you know, not by that much. You're still clearing land to mm-hmm. raise animals and you are still buying or growing food to feed to those animals. Right. And then if you get a hunting license and you go after feral pigs, 30 to 50 only, feral pigs. Yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> however many feral pigs, you, it's open season on those suckers. Oh, are you, are you not a, um, are you not a Twitter fiend like some of us? I, I am not, but I, I have heard that That's term. That's super hilarious. Yeah, there was a big th- meme fest that went along Twitter a little while ago where, like, someone argued that we can't have gun control because of the 30 to 50 feral hogs that are going to attack their <laughs> small children. And it, Twitter just lost their minds over this concept of 30 to 50 feral hogs. So <laughs> you have you have stumbled upon a really important meme there. Oh, boy. Well, hogs are the... Uh, everybody... Everybody likes to hate on the feral pigs. Um, apparently. Because, and apparently they're bulletproof. Like, one person's response yeah. was, yeah, good luck with your gun. Try dynamite. Yeah, they are They are really incredible. Uh, that's kind of why I pick on them for my for this little segment in my lecture is that mm-hmm. um, they are there's – no, there's no limit and there's no season on them. Any time <laughs> of year, any place, you can get as many as you want. Because they are impossible to kill. <laughs> um, they're really it's sort ridiculous. of a, a they're like super elite. <laughs> Just like they, yeah, they're unbelievable. There have been so many accounts of hunters who have uh, they've shot a pig, and when they get up to it, you know, or when they're when they're dressing it, uh, you know, and skinning it, they mm-hmm. find like you know, like six arrowheads embedded in the thing or something like that, or like other like stray bullets that didn't kill. They are uh, unbelievable creatures. So we all just assumed that like Stannis Baratheon was a terrible hunter. And the reality was that these things are just like dynamite. That's the reality. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. Look back at any of those like medieval things when they're like a dangerous hunting. It's not a deer. You know, you take a fart in the woods and a deer is gone, you know, Mm -hmm. but pigs, man, they are tough. Not only do they not give a crap about you, but yeah, they'll, they will attack you. Um, They are, yeah, they are tough suckers, Um, but they're, because there's no seat, there's no season on them because they also have no breeding season. They're breeding constantly. So they're, (laughs) 
every time you're desperately trying to kill one pig, they've just made like 30 more. <laughs> so they're like, they're like rabbits with really, really sharp tusks is what you're saying. Yeah, they, exactly. They're like rabbits who have absolutely destroyed a lot of the natural habitat of yeah. a lot of animals and are pushing like a lot of, uh, like there's some, uh, Oh, like quail, uh, some species of quail in Texas that are, have been, their numbers have just been decimated because the pigs move around and they eat all their eggs. And mm-hmm. so they're, they're invasive. And it generally, if, if people are, it's kind of an, that's kind of your, if you are a late onset hunter to someone who's getting into hunting later in life, mm-hmm. they're sort of, a, they're the, the, usually the game animal that you're starting with something like a pig or a white tailed deer. Cause you know, the deer are everywhere. Uh, they're mm-hmm. not going anybody anywhere. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. That's what I think of in Virginia is always deer. Uh, I should, yeah. I should correct myself from earlier because I'll get added about this. Otherwise I guess it was Robert Baratheon, not Stannis who, who gets murdered by the boar and, uh, Game of Thrones. Oh yes, 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 yes. Um, uh, the other, the other Good boar for you that for keeping everyone's name straight. I, oh no, I'm, I'm the worst at names, and will get made fun of for it by my cult members later. So I'm <laughs> trying to get ahead of the game here a little bit. They, they'll still, they'll still make fun of me for it. The other, the other yeah. one that I think of when I think of wild boar that are the the most hilarious, like do, doesn't give a fuck, like honey badger style boars, are the ones from Chernobyl, right? Oh man, yeah. Just like these, these herds of boar that are just incredibly irradiated and just like Blowing don't care. Dark. Yeah, and they just are breeding like no problem. They don't, they don't care in the least. It seems like. Yeah, they are. I mean, they are. You know, the um, uh, what is it? It's not about uh, evolution. Is not about survival of the fittest. It's about survival of that which is most adaptable to change sure. right right and man these things they they don't care what's going on around them i'm pretty sure if you set loose a uh, a bunch of wild pig in brooklyn they would be fine they'd sure. figure out how to move around the cars they'd find the places to live and the find the places to eat um yeah they are pretty incredible animals um but yeah so they end up being a what i like to call a climate positive meat they're not uh it's not just climate neutral you are spending money to keep the land free from people who would rather spend money to turn it into drilling for gas and oil or deforestation the Hmm. fact that the fact that the animals are worth something mm-hmm. is it, it, to go with my pessimistic view of humanity. I can't stand people. I think they're horrible. People only keep around what they use, right? Sure. They're out of sight, out of mind. If they're not using it, they don't care about it. And if you have people who are paying for a thing, if they're using a thing, then yeah, they want to keep it around. And, uh, so there is money generated in keeping wildlands wild because they are useful. Now you've got national parks, people pay to enter those. Mm-hmm. There's no hunting on those. And that's great. There's a discussion right now of a backpacker tax mm-hmm. and the same way that hunters pay into the system of conservation. There's uh, a discussion of, okay, well, should other outdoor enthusiasts be paying their bit? Um, so if you were to go, uh, yeah, if you were to go, uh, I, I use the example mm-hmm. of kayaking cause I'm a, a kayak instructor. And, um, so I know all about kayaks and equipment costs and all that kind of thing. And if you were to look at like sort of bare bones, what you're spending, mm-hmm. if you, in New York state, if you want to go hunting, you got to take your hunter safety course. That's 15 bucks. Your general hunting license. That's 22 bucks. If you, you're going to have to buy a rifle. That's 800 bucks ammunition, a box of 20 rounds. That's like 40, $40, something like that. Um, and that's just a box of 20. You're going to go through a few boxes and practice and, you know, range days through a season. Right. So you're spending like 840 something, uh, on, on that little maneuver. And that money, 
the percentage there, that 11% excise tax, that's about $130 going into conservation. And then reoccurring are the, that is that money that you have to spend every single year. So you've got your rifle already. You spent that. You got your hunter safety course. You don't have to buy that again, but you're going to have to keep buying your license every year. You still have to pay extra if you want a special tag for like a doe or turkey. You're still going to have to buy ammunition. That's 11% every time you do that. So now you're looking at like 30 bucks every year that you're spending that's going directly to conservation. If you buy a kayak, all right, so that's like 600 bucks on your kayak, 100 bucks for your paddle, like 120 on a, a PFD, you know, a life preserver. Right. So now you're also spending like 800 20 30 something like that. And then uh but the money that that generated for conservation, nothing, zero. Um yeah, so it's like okay, to be a kayaker Maybe you should have to buy every time you buy your kayak, when you buy your kayak, when you buy your paddle, when you buy your PFD, when you get a, maybe you have to get a kayaker safety license and all that money should go into protecting the waterways. This this, this raises a a problem though. I think a trade-off that I think maybe gets a little bit glossed over in, in the Americanized version of conservation, which is with each of those taxes and with each of these costs, you are gatekeeping nature for a large number of people that like our our system of national parks, amazing as they are, is predominantly more accessible to people who have more means in a variety of kinds of ways. And that like, there are, I mean, we're in a little short on time, so we probably can unpack all of this, but I'm curious what you think about like moves in sort of modern sustainable um, conservation that move away from like, you know, keep these sacred lands over here separate from our social situation and move towards sort of engaging a green space that is accessible to absolutely everyone. Sure. Um, I, I want nature to be accessible for everyone um, to everyone. But, you know, to get into a national park, you're spending, I don't know, I think it's like $35 or something to get into Mm -hmm. a national park per vehicle. If you can spend the money to fly out there, get an Airbnb, rent a car or whatever, then you can spend the $35 to get in. Um, If you are buying a kayak if you're buying a paddle then some of that excise that that would be hidden tax it would probably end up on your you would end up paying it in some way because if the kayak manufacturer has to in uh, has to pay an 11% tax then they're going to pass that on to you mm-hmm. but you're just going to see it as the cost of the kayak um so yeah. to do these outdoor uh to take part in outdoor recreation is expensive. People who are, uh, it's expensive for anyone. The barrier to entry, I don't think is the cost of equipment, even if it goes up a little bit, that's not going to be the thing that stops people. I I live in New York city and I want to spend my money on these kind of things. And it's difficult for me just because it's, Mm -hmm. it's hard to get out of the city. It means I got to find a place outside where I can stay, where there's a lot of costs. Um, And as much as I would like it to be free and accessible for everyone, the people who could be making the money off this land by selling it to gas and oil drilling, that's a lot of money. And the only way to fight, money is with money and Mm -hmm. i'd certainly like it to come from people who want to spend their time outdoors and um protecting the environment and i would love to you know live Mm -hmm. in a world where it's accessible to everyone but uh i don't i don't think it's ever been that way unless you live in the unless you live out in the country and you're you're able to have that be a part of your daily life but yeah. For someone, you know, I feel like the same argument comes up with the plastic bag ban. Like, oh, it's a tax on the poor. And it's like, no, you there there are things we can do to make sure everyone has a bag. Uh, you know, like don't let that be the argument. Like plastic bags, single-use bags should be banned. We have other, we have uh-huh. the technology to come up with something else. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. And 
um you know i was that was a little bit of a side tangent oh, sure, on, sure. in terms of you know nuances of con- of conservation debates within conservation circles it seems like um but i, I do also want to say that within that north american system mm-hmm. of uh, conservation it has basically seven big tenants to it and the and one of them is it's called the democracy of hunting mm-hmm. and the idea is that this needs to be for and accessible to everyone if they want to do it. Now, that's not entirely true. Hunting's expensive, even if you do it on the most bare-bones budget. Um, There -hmm. is a lot that goes into it. But the idea is that someone with more money shouldn't be able to access uh, more than someone with less money. And because of this, you end up with uh, a lot of lottery systems for hunting tags. So... Um, the Rocky mm-hmm. Mountain, or not uh, Rocky Mountain, uh, the Wild Sheep Foundation, for instance, they, it's a lottery system to get a tag to hunt wild sheep because uh, it's a very coveted tag. There aren't many given out. It's supply and demand kind of thing. Mm. But every year, they auction off one or two tags to the highest bidder. So mm-hmm. here's a way that it is still a lottery system for everyone everyone has a chance to get a tag but at the same time they are able to generate an immense amount of money through just auctioning off a couple tags a year so they're able to kind of right. do both um in at, the, at the small cost of inequality of a person being able to skip the line and and guarantee themselves by having the most money to spend on it i, I mean exactly. Yeah, and it's like a great example of sort of a, an ethical compromise in that kind of way. Um, but we're running a little short on time, unfortunately. Um, do you want to maybe do Making the Void Livable uh, before we sure. run out? So uh, what what is Making the Void Livable for you these days? Um, I think it's definitely, well, I live in New York City, so the number one thing would be getting out of the city. <laughs> um, Standard. Uh, Yep. Uh, yeah, as often, and I'm, I'm lucky that I do get to travel a lot for uh, the work that I do and, and being able to uh, give these lectures. And a lot of times I am out in the, in the woods getting outside as much as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, travel, certainly. Um, and I, I, do, I do get a, I am a very pessimistic person, especially when it comes to the environment. Um, I am really worried about it. <laughs> and Yeah, we didn't uh, even get into how doomed we are on climate. Con- yeah, climate. exactly. Um, but talking to people and seeing, I give tours of the Natural History Museum uh, here in New York. And anytime I'm giving a lecture or a tour and I get to talk to people and they they ask a lot of questions or they get really interested or I can see kind of their changing their minds about hunting. Not You can still think that hunters are jerks and that it's uh, a weird thing to want to kill an animal, but to, to have sort of a respect for how the system works and how the money gets generated or people's reactions to like the weird history of taxidermy or something. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, even though I, I live and breathe this sort of uh, pessimistic world of the environment, I'm also heartened and uh excited by the people uh who also get excited by it um but definitely getting out of the city and spending time in the woods Mm -hmm. probably my number one thinking about how the woods will survive long after the city has collapsed yes yes the pigs will be there they will (laughs) feral pigs they are going nowhere fast Mm -hmm. um so great thank you so much brant um can you let folks know where they can find you uh sure so my uh website for my tours and classes and lectures and stuff is immortalanimals.com. And my I don't really do much on Instagram, but I'm on Instagram at um, uh, stuff in my apartment. <laughs> stuff in my apartment. I see what you, I see what you did there. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, so if you are in the New York area and you'd like a tour of the American Museum of Natural History, uh, drop me a line. I would actually like a tour of the American Museum of Natural yeah. History, and I do live in the area, so <laughs> I might hit you up for that later. Perfect. Please do. And then later on, so that you can stuff my dead body and, I don't know, put it up somewhere Wonderful. as a monument. I All can't right. fit you in my freezer at the moment, but... Uh... <laughs> 
give me give me time we'll call it we'll do it a custom job yeah um, <laughs> we'll do it like um like bentham and we'll do the head separate so that it fits in the freezer <laughs> all right That's well my- thank you so much brant i really appreciate it uh thank you thank you to our listeners and patrons for making all of this possible thank you to our new patrons grand Priapism, hunter ash john bartlett and general contact unit problem child uh thank you to our twenty dollar tier patrons jude law's canadian accent in existence makes my pussy throb the person who controls the spice controls the void volunteer with camp quest this summer campquest.org jonathan Steele is a great dad fund jesse rabinowitz and brenda goodman and thank you especially to our top-tier patron, as always, the wonderful Dave Maslich. Thank you so, so much. You all make this entirely possible. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Follow us at Twitter at ETVPod. And support us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void, and the void is you. Mm-hmm.